I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. All right, here we are, uh, Ditch Digger CEO. I got my, my partner Q here with me. And I've got a guy here that I love, man. He's an awesome, awesome guy, great friend of mine. And uh, we've got a little history together. And uh, it's so exciting when you see, you know, entrepreneurs that, that uh, know they're entrepreneurs at a young age. They, they've, they see people in their lives that, that uh, you know, they can look at and say, I want to be like that. No, I want to be like my mom. I want to be like my dad. Right. I want to be. And this is one of those people. And uh, uh, so it's, 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 a, it's this. Is a, you know, we, t- we have a lot of rags to riches stories in here. We, yeah. have, we got a lot of we've got a lot of, uh, uh, you know, 30, 40 year uh, uh, overnight successes. You know, um, and then we got some amazing, you know, successes that happen a little quicker than that. Yeah. Huh, Q? yeah, man, I remember exactly. Actually, four and a half years ago, when I, when me and you, uh, when actually when you bought me out of my job and had gave me the opportunity to start True Mentors, and one of the first people I met with this was this person, and um, just to see the aura and the energy that he has and the, his mindset. And before he left, you know, um, you know, before before he left, he was somebody that actually had a one on one mentor conversation because of you at Chick-fil-A of all places. I remember that. And he, you know, um, so it's just this is a humbling and amazing experience for me because to see what he's done and to see where it is now. Um, is because single-handedly in my mind, he's one of the one of the best at it. So, so here we are today with our buddy Sam McBride. Sam, welcome, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Um, you know, we, we I know a little bit about your 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 upbringing and your story and all that, but never enough. And I can't hear it enough times. But I think the world needs to hear it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you know where where this entrepreneurial mentality came from that you have that you've had ever since I met you when you first came in here looking, you know, looking at, for a job and you could you could worked anywhere. And you came to work for us, and I was like happy to have you. But I, I knew, and I think we had a conversation, man, if I don't figure out a way to partner with you and, and get you some interest in something, you're not going to be here forever, right? And, uh, and, and definitely, that, of course, that's what happened, which is, uh, which is awesome. So let's, let's start, though, with uh, 
with kind of your upbringing stuff and, and how that went and, and where you got this doggone mind you, you, yeah. you've had that all this time. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact origins, but uh, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. And so ever since I was a little kid, I've loved business. Like I've just been one of these one of these kids who like as a little kid, I love business. And I remember selling candy out of my locker in junior high. Like I just always had these little, I used to sell my little sister, my baseball trophies cause she had a babysitting gig. So I was just always kind of, I just liked the, I loved business from an early age. Um, and then I had the good fortune. I grew up with two parents who worked for big companies. And so I got to see at an early age, what, uh, what a company can be to its employees and also to the family. So my mom worked at McDonald's and my dad worked at Southwest and both companies are, are arguably the best in their field. And you could see the sense of pride my parents had working for those two companies and it rubbed off on me. I saw how, what, what a positive impact a company could have on its employees. And, um, so I always just loved it and I was into it from a really early age. And then, uh, I chose, a college that allowed me to major in finance and entrepreneurship. So I got to kind of put some formalization around the, around the desire. And then, um, and then pretty quickly after school, I started out in finance very quickly, uh, realized I wanted to go operate and build a business. And I was lucky. I had a mentor of mine who had found an opportunity to build a home security business, uh, went and did that with him. We were successful there. Uh, the company ended up selling to a strategic buyer and then had the opportunity to come work at Rabine. And I'm sure we'll get into it, but I saw a a, a real learning opportunity there um, and then had the good fortune. Two of my good buddies uh, had invented RX Bar and started the business and at, they asked me to join them early on. So I've had I've always had a desire, but I've also had a lot of good breaks and that the people around me have had uh, good opportunities that I've been kind of in the right place at the right time for. Well, that, that was a quick story. That, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we're done. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and, and uh, so, so tell us where, you know, when you were a kid, you know, as you saw, you saw your parents, you know, like excited about what they're doing for great companies and all that. Um, you, you saw the kind of, you know, I, I use this terminology a lot, but the, you know, the dignity of work you saw with your parents, right. For you to be a, a young man, you know, looking, you know, you're, you're, I'm sure your parents would have paid for whatever you needed anytime you wanted, but you, I know you, you loved having your own wad of cash in your pocket that you earned, you know, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't just that they, they loved the companies that they worked for and they felt a lot of pride in the work they did, but one of the things I distinctly remember is is both of them talking about the leaders of the businesses. So uh, for my mom, Fred Turner was someone who had a huge impact on her early on. And, and my dad, Herb Kelleher, who just recently passed away at Southwest. And, and these guys were huge personalities, were at the center of their businesses. And um, so I had a good sense of what amazing leadership looked like. Um, and that was one of the things I was particularly lucky at McDonald's because my mom, uh, she was a part of their internal communications team. And so as a part of that, she was close with the board at McDonald's. And McDonald's being the company that it is, the board of advisors there are some really, really impressive people. And so as a 14-year-old kid who just loved business, I would go to the shareholders meetings and, uh, and I mean, these are public, so it wasn't like I was like in the boardroom or anything, but I got to build relationships with 
different people on the board and got to see really on a personal level what amazing leaders looked like who were in these really influential corporate positions. Um, so, you know, at an early age, I just had an incredible amount of exposure to really, really strong business leaders and like fundamental business leaders, you know, packaging paper manufacturers, not like, not, uh, you know, a highly funded tech startup, but somebody who was kind of an old school business person who did it, you know, profitably and over time and slowly. And so I had a lot of exposure to that type of business. What characteristics do you think you picked up early um, that would you say that assisted you to the opportunities of connecting with other people today? So I actually, I called uh, one of the board members at McDonald's once because I, I was curious if he saw any, uh, any consistent character traits of the CEOs that he'd seen at McDonald's. And so I asked him, I, I, and I asked him, are there any consistent character traits? And he said, you know, there's a bunch of different styles. Like I've seen people who are micromanagers. I've seen people who are big charismatic leaders. The one thing that's consistent is that the best leaders are trusted and respected. So however they get there is sort of their style. But those were two things that he said he saw consistently across decades of McDonald's CEOs and you know he's in a pretty unique spot to watch that so absolutely absolutely I mean it seems simple but it's not I mean right I mean for uh, somebody can be honest as can be but they they don't maybe they don't have emotional intelligence to connect to enough people to be trusted enough right Um, but but to be able to you know to to have that with everybody on board right everybody that's working every day for you um, isn't isn't always common but when you when you have that Right now, now you got you know everybody moving the right direction, mm-hmm. and it gives you a lot of leeway. So if people trust you and respect you, when there's tough times or you have to make changes that people are maybe like sixty percent on board for, you're more likely that they're going to say, you know, what, I'm going to give this person the benefit of the doubt. Whereas if you don't have that, you better be right and clearly right all the time, or people aren't going to follow. Yeah, and they're and they're going to forgive they're going to forgive you when you make mistakes. They're going to forgive when you when you maybe pivot and, and you and you go the wrong direction. Right? They're like, oh, you know what? I trust them. We tried, right? Yeah. And 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 we'll uh, we'll do it all over again, right? Yeah. Together. And and you're right. Sometimes uh, you'll you'll see team members fall off fast because the trust isn't there, even in even in a pivot that turns out to be a great pivot, maybe, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And then, uh, okay, so so when when you when you think about your first jobs, you know, you when you you know when you when you, fourteen years old around these these great leaders and under and starting to absorb this stuff. Now, when you when you got into your first jobs, you know, how did that affect you? And how that how did that, uh, um, you know, make you think differently that maybe than somebody next to you? What what differentiated you from the, the the young person next to you, maybe in the same job that that it didn't quite you know create the same opportunity you did? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing was that. And this comes from my parents seeing how hardworking they were. Um, I I liked it. Like I liked being an umpire. I liked being a caddy. I liked mowing lawns. I liked I liked the commerce. I loved the process. And so I think the first differentiating factor as a fourteen year old is I really wanted to work. I really liked it. And uh, so I had. I mean, I probably had ten jobs by the time I was in high school. I washed dishes. I uh, worked at a golf course. I fit golf clubs. I was a caddy, umpire, referee, lawnmower, babysitter. I mean, you name it. I just I I loved it. And then I also I remember as, as a kid, I loved the idea of making money and then putting it in a bank account. I, I just thought it was so cool that it could then sit there and 
you earned interest <laughs> on it, you know? Grow, yeah. You know? And it, it was such like, a, it seems like such a basic concept, but as a 14 year old, that was pretty amazing that, but that was back when you can get like six or seven percent on <laughs> that's a, true. Uh, yeah, and your money in the bank, right? And yeah. Uh, today it's tougher, but either way, no, you're right. It's it's just fun to, to be able to, like you're saying, put money away, and then all of a sudden it grows a little bit. I mean, wow, what happened there? Yeah, it's my dad interest. used to he would walk us to the bank so we'd go deposit our money, and there were these. We had U.S. Bank uh, was our bank, and they had these like kids checking accounts that were kind of like friendly and colorful and you'd record how much you put in and how much interest it earned from the last time. And I can still remember doing it. And, um, and then, and then before, so once you're 18, you can open up a brokerage account, but, uh, probably around 14 or 15 years old, I started asking my parents instead of Christmas presents or birthday presents, can you guys just give me like a hundred bucks into a fidelity account that I can run. <laughs> and so they had to set it up under their name cause I couldn't do it. But so then I started taking it to the next level instead of putting it in the U S bank and just earning interest, I would go and I would put it into companies that I thought were good companies to invest in. And it was really basic analysis. You know I mean? I'm 14, so I couldn't, I wasn't doing anything super complex, but I would basically, I would read what Warren Buffett was doing. And then of all the companies he liked, I would pick the ones that I especially liked. So I still remember my first uh, stock was Steak and Shake, S&S. And, uh, and then I bought Motorola for a while. But as a kid, I just got into it and saw how, how money worked and how investing in companies worked. And so it was always just kind of top of mind for me. That's something, something that, that, that first experience in, in bank in the bank it mattered to you, right? You remembered U.S. Bank. I remember Fox Lake State Bank where I started my Christmas club. I had my newspaper out and, and, I, and I started this Christmas club, they called it, where I got some credits towards Christmas gifts to start it and then have so much money in it. And it was, and I'll never forget it. Fox Lake Bank, I had till I was a, a you know, two and a half or $3 million company. And I, and I, they never would give me a, a, a line of credit, never had one, didn't know what one was until I, I, I you know, eventually shopped for a little better situation and left Fox Lake Community Bank. But again, what, you know, you'll never forget that bank, the experience, that person, right? That, and, and, uh, that, and, and again, for you, that, that's, that was a cool experience, right? And, and now, and now, like you're saying, trading, do you still do some trading today on the, on the lessons you learned back then? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it trading, but there's still I I pick a I'll pick companies that I think 20 years from now, and so those kind of Buffett principles of not trading but investing in companies that's still the only thing I really do. I'm not smart enough to trade in and out of things, but I'll pick companies that I think, hey, 20 years from now these guys have an advantage, and I think it'll still be there, um, and I'll put money and I'll sort of park it there. Buffett principles that he needs to create a book. He probably does. Already. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good deal. So um, I'm pretty sure Gary won't ask this, but how did you uh, how did you meet Gary? I think that'd be facetious. Like Gary said, how did you meet me? You know, so how, how did you how did you meet Gary? You know, how's the connection? How did that happen? All of yeah. that good stuff. So this is, I don't even know if I've told you this story, but so uh, when Gary and I were introduced, I was in the home security business and uh, a good friend called and she was a recruiter and she had been hired by Rabine to recruit for this position. And so she calls me and she says, Hey, you're in marketing and sales, right? And I'm like, yeah. And, uh, she's like, I have this client who I keep getting candidates past the first guy and then they meet the CEO and he doesn't like them. And, and she's like, I'm going to lose the client if I can't keep sending them candidates. Will you just go take an interview for me? She's like, I know you're not looking. And, 
I was like, sure, you know, why not? And and you know, I was I'm always curious and to learn about another business. And I figured, what's the worst case? I you know, I see a pitch and you know, what harm can come of it? And uh, so the first interview went well. And Anthony at the time called me back and said, hey, I want you to come meet Gary. And again, my plan was not to to come work here really, but I figured now I'm like I gotta at least meet Gary, you know. And so we, our interview was scheduled for like 45 minutes or something. Like two hours later, we just hit it off. And uh, I mean, this is, I'm sure anybody who meets Gary can, feels this way, but he just sort of like pulls you in. And, and I was like, you know, I could learn so much being close to this guy for the next period of time. Um, and so that, that was it. I was introduced to a recruiter. I didn't know this. Yeah. I, I thought you seriously wanted this job, man. <laughs> Come on. Huh. Wow. That's funny. That's funny. And I, I remember that, you know, you're, you're just uh, so entrepreneurial for a young guy and, and, and you're like, wow, you know, you asked me a lot of great questions and most people didn't ask me, right? Most people didn't have the guts to ask me some questions. Sam asked me back then. And I was like, man, I, I remember saying this when we finally, when we, I don't know if it was then, but probably when, when we determined that you were, you know, we really wanted you on board. Um, my, my thing was, gosh, you know what, you are, you're going to be successful. You're going to be a successful entrepreneur somewhere. I just hope I could, I could figure out where you can, where you can be a partner here. Otherwise you're going to go somewhere else. And Hey, that's okay. Yeah. I remember, you know, we talked about that I said, uh, and, and, you know, I've had a few people that have gone from here to be successful other places. And that's kind of, that's really cool. Right. I get as much out of that as if they're on our team and they, and they become very successful. Um, so, so again, I remember the conversation. Then I remember, you know, and I remember, you know, all the things you did in our organization were awesome. I mean, you, you started in marketing, but really were became more of a sales manager, and 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 uh, you were you were a sales salesman, sales manager, marketing man. You end up to do like anything you were asked to do and more. Operations, I think you dived into operations to help out. And at the time, we had we had some people that drop would drop the ball here or there, and and somebody would pick it up, and Sam would pick it up. But uh, I, I'll never forget the day you walked in here, right where you're at now. I I, I think right is where. We we had the conversation, and and, and uh, you know, it was like you know, Gary, I, I I really like it here. I I, I didn't plan to leave the you know really leave this organization. I thought figured we'd have opportunity to partner in something or whatever. But I got to tell you, I got a great opportunity, and and I was like, oh man, I got, I'm like I'm I'm, try, I'm thinking about why why the opportunity you know as he's telling me about the opportunity, thinking about why it can't be as good as what we can offer him here, right? But everything he said, even even though he's he's taking a cut in pay, he's he's taking a lot of risk, right, to take this new job in a small small company, and and I and I was like, oh, you know, Sam, I, I, I you're taking risk here, man. But then but then I also thought about what well, he really didn't have that much risk because I'd take him back in a heartbeat if if something didn't work out, right? So so either way, I remember that day like it was yesterday and, and i'm so happy that that it worked out as as amazingly well as it did and and uh and i, and I know you've had a lot of fun so yeah uh, you can you can start there or whatever and and, and tell us how things yeah. are going but X, rx man started where how did it you know it two friends came to you and then what happened next yeah well well f so before i get into rx because it relates one of the things that i learned here that i brought to rx that was invaluable is uh this idea of passion and the way that you go about building relationships and selling to people, especially in a big corporate environment like a Walmart or a Target, um, that was something I had had no experience with. And so when we met, I thought, you know, first of all, you had sold me. And I always like to joke, like, you could live in a condo in Chicago and you spend a half an hour with Gary and, like, you're ready to buy a 100,000 square foot, eight inch depth concrete parking lot. Uh, and uh, so, so I 
one of the th- one of the big things I took away from here was how you connect with people and how you build those relationships with with big companies, and that would serve us well at our X bar. Um, but so the way our X bar happened, um, I like I mentioned earlier, I was lucky. Two of my closest friends had started our X bar, and they had this very simple but great insight, which was there's protein bars, but they have long lists of ingredients. And then there's clean bars like Lara bar that don't have much protein. And why hasn't anybody put the two together? And at the time, CrossFit was at the center of their lives. And in CrossFit, a lot of people do are paleo eaters. And there really was not a bar for the paleo consumer. And so that's how when they were making the product, they came up with egg whites as the protein source, almonds at the time, it was half a fig, and dates as kind of the base of the bar. And so they solved a a very clear niche consumer's need, which was if you're a paleo eater or if you're doing a Whole30 or if you're just a super clean eater who wants a lot of protein because you're working out really hard, there's not really a product. And if you had looked at the business in 2014 – it was really a CrossFit brand, um, which is very narrow, you know, in the grand scheme of brands. And one of the things I learned at LiveWatch, the home security business, where we catered to a really niche consumer as well, a DIY consumer, is the niches are really powerful because you can market and sell to niches in a way that you can't to the mass market because they immediately understand the product. They're going to give you a lot of leeway in terms of your ability to explain the product well because they're going to understand it. So there were, there were, believe it or not, a lot of similarities between LiveWatch and our X-Bar when I first started talking to Jared and Peter. And originally we were just talking kind of just about their business. I was excited that two of my good buddies had started this business. Now, good buddies. This is this is like not just normal good buddies. This is like from grade school, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've from, known each other since fourth grade. Jared and I grew up playing basketball together. Peter, at basketball? Jared. <laughs> no. Jared's better. Uh, uh, you know, Peter was the best man in my wedding. We're, we're super close. Um but I was just excited. They had started this business and it was, they had traction and it was working and people were buying it and they're starting to get some attention. And I was just super excited for them. And so we started talking about the business and there were some things that we'd done at LiveWatch that I thought might work at RX Bar, uh, especially when it came to, to selling a product online to a niche. There were some similarities. And uh, so one day they were like, hey, do you want to come do this with us? And so that was kind of when you and I had our conversation, and it was a great opportunity for me. Um, and, at the, and at that point, uh, the, the branding was pretty blah. I mean, I, I mean good. I think there were some cool ideas within it, right? But it seemed kind of eh, yeah. blah. Didn't didn't excite the packaging. Didn't excite me. You know, you know. But it was so it was so young that that it didn't didn't, it didn't really matter in my opinion. But um, but boy, it, you know, when I saw the branding change and I saw the. You know that you know you're you're marketing to a mass market. And, you know, soon after the things that I saw, I was like, oh my god, they're yeah. they're gonna kick butt. This yeah. is awesome. And then I'm eating them all. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't I wasn't crazy about them at first, but then after I had a couple or two or three, I'm like, whoa, wait, I'm liking yeah. this a lot. Yeah. And I I think I called you a couple of times. Hey, you know, they're a little they they stick in my teeth a little too much. And you're like, yeah, right. But I guess because you're old, right? Or you know <laughs> you know no. Bottom line though is I remember a few things that and it, it's it seems like you just slowly changed as probably yeah. people would say things, but. Man, 
it within, I mean, I always liked the taste after the first few, right? But, but it just got better and better. And so, yeah, Yeah, I mean, so the thing that, uh, the thing we were able, we were able to do a couple things well, but one of them was we could stay in that niche for a while. And so when we had the packaging you're describing, it's kind of traditional packaging. It had a big brand clip art picture of a blueberry, some call outs, but it really didn't stand out in any way. And it also, what it really didn't do was clarify what the value of the product was. That was the big missing thing. But because we were selling it to mostly CrossFit people, paleo people, people doing whole 30, we could, we didn't have to be great at communicating the value proposition because that consumer was so thirsty for it. Yeah. And so they would turn it over and read the ingredients and understand the value proposition that we weren't really being very clear in communicating. And so what we were able to do is we could keep selling to that niche and that, that market and keep growing the business while we really figured out in our minds, what's the value proposition that can cross the chasm from this narrow CrossFit community to a broader mass audience. And so the time that it gave us, the fact that we could continue to grow the business, but still focus on like, how do we get it to that next phase uh, was invaluable. And it also, um, it allowed us to build the business profitably. We didn't have to take money, which meant we got to do everything on our own terms. So we didn't have a board, we didn't have, you know, a fund, trying to get us to exit or raise another round we could really do things on our own terms and that was also incredibly valuable and the packaging in retrospect people are like oh the packaging's brilliant and the funny thing is when we first when we first got to that packaging uh we still had like four or five months of the old packaging and we didn't have any money so we had to sell the old packaging <laughs> you had to use it up yeah use we, it up. <laughs> yeah we, we couldn't just discard it and uh so we had this little laminated roll up that we would take to trade shows and just anybody who would look at it, we'd show them and say, look, this is what it's going to look like. All excited. This is the future. I'm not kidding. Everybody was like, that is terrible. <laughs> like that is, there's no taste appeal. No one's going to know what it is. The brand is too small. I don't know what flavor it is. I mean, and we showed it to like, I mean, experts, you know, buyers who said one buyer told us, I will never take this. Wow. And because, because of the packaging. Yeah, because of the packaging. And, but we knew the consumer so intimately because we had been selling online. So like we literally knew people by name because they would call us. And whenever somebody called customer service, every phone in the office rang and one of us would pick it up. So we knew the customers literally by first name. So we knew the consumer would get it. Um, but it's just funny because most people did not think it was very good at the time. So what they did, what they didn't think was good was, you know, maybe they're they were just thinking of the commonality of of the the packaging of all these other you know all the other competitors, right? And this was so different and bland, kind of bland almost, right? It's just it's just not enough sexiness to it, right? But your message got across on that on that packaging fast, and that, and I think that's that's what I saw as the key. Your messaging was so clear, you know. Um, you know, so simple and so clear that I think that's what sold it. Yep. Yeah. And we didn't tell people there's a lot of, especially in food, there's a lot of preachy marketing that says, do this and you'll be this way and, you know, eat this and you'll be like me. And, you know, and we were just kind of like, you know, we don't really want to be a preachy brand. We want to tell people what it is, be pretty straightforward about that. And then the, 
our customers are smart enough. They can make their own decisions. We don't need to tell them this is going to turn them into a mountain climber. I mean, how more transparent can you get, right? Three egg whites, six almonds, four cashews, two dates, and no BS. And that's the part that the no BS, how did you all, because that right there, I'm, for example, I'm running, because I run a lot, right? I don't, I'm not into the CrossFit, but I'll listen to some Pandora, and then all of a sudden I hear RX Bar commercial come on, and literally the only thing I can remember is no BS. And it makes me remember RX Bar, no, like how did you all think of that aspect of it like you know you know how did that all come together from a marketing scheme because i think that's probably helped you all success in a way that it did yeah um so in the early days when the first package was being designed peter and jared were listing the the attributes so gluten-free it was no gluten no soy no dairy no bs was the original four claims and the no bs came from I think they kind of just felt like they needed another one and it kind of like wrapped up everything. Like it sort of felt like it like encompassed all of the claims and it also spoke to the simplicity of the product. And so it's been there from the beginning, but one of the design decisions to make that really a huge part of the packaging. And that was the other thing. People were like, you guys are crazy to print no BS in huge letters on all your packaging. And we even had some buyers who for a while would say, my, my shoppers are, are religious. They don't like, you know, swearing. We'd say it stands for no bad, bad stuff. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. that's on the kids, yeah. on the kids brand and the yeah. kid that you have, it's it no says bad stuff. no right. BS, no bad stuff. Right? Yeah. But, uh, but it became kind of a filter. Why is everybody going to be so negative? I'm just saying, man. God. Yeah, they assume negative intent with it. Uh, but it, it became it became a filter for us in a bunch of ways. So no BS became a way that we thought about doing business. It became a filter for us when we created new products. Um, it became kind of a filter for the way we worked internally. It became kind of like a corporate filter in a bunch of different ways. And so its meaning evolved over time. Um, but when it came down to it from the product side, it was just that this is a simple product. And uh, that's the other design decision that's unique is we don't have gluten-free symbols. We don't say there's no soy, no dairy. It's not paleo certified. We don't do any of the the sort of, we, we call it like race car when you race car your product because you put all these logos all over it because um, we felt like... That answers the question. I mean, that yeah, tells it all right exactly. there. Yeah, right? right. I love it. Yeah. Now, okay, so now you know, when, when, they, when you came on board there, I remember you telling me, I'm saying, well, you know, what, what size is this company, Sam? Is it big enough to support your, your appetite for, you know, to kick ass and, 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 and to grow? And, you know, you know, Gary, it's a, I think you told me it's a few hundred thousand dollars in revenues or whatever it was, right? Is that yeah. about what well, it was? Yeah, well, so so I joined in late 2014, and we, we finished that year at just over $2 million. Okay. So, so what was it when you, was it, that's what it was when you came on board? Yeah, they were on pace to do pretty close okay. to $2 million. So a couple million, couple million dollars. And, and uh, I'm like, man, how are they going to support you? You know, you're, you're, you're a guy that needs to, to, to you know, well, in, in, and you had the confidence, hey, I, I believe my value to, to my, my, my buddies can, can really help us, you know, help us and grow huge. And, you know, and you're saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm confident we're going to make, the, we're going to, we're going to do really well with this. And, and they're going to give me options and opportunities to do more and be, be a bigger chunk of this and all that. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, I I loved your your the the courage you had right to just jump off and go do something making much less money, and and then uh, so so tell us what happened after that. So you're on course to two million bucks the first year you're there, 
and then and tell me tell me how things went. So the big thing was uh, the thing that really appealed to me is that there was an opportunity to go to market in a different way. So the big uh, disruption that we made on the home security business was we removed the installer. So immediately we became a national distributor because we didn't have installers because people installed it themselves. And so when Peter and Jared uh, were explaining that they really weren't going through distributors, they weren't going to traditional retailers, they were selling CrossFit gyms and online, it was kind of the same principle that there was this unique way, yeah, big differentiator on the way to market. And so that's what got me excited was that we could, we could go a different way when everybody else in the industry was going this sort of traditional way. Um, and so 2014, we were basically purely rxbar.com. And um, <clears throat> some people were buying it for their, for their homes, pure direct consumer sales. And then some people were buying it for their gym, their CrossFit gym, which we would call B2B. And it was kind of a 50-50 split. And then in 2015, we really pushed. So that was when we layered on uh, some digital, paid digital. But what we really leaned into was building a community on Instagram and uh, email marketing, and then also building an inside sales team. So those three things we focused on to build out the direct-to-consumer and then the B2B business, which is like the CrossFit gyms. Um, so what was unique about that is the model was profitable. So we could hire a handful of people to go build this without having to go raise money or change course or have to go chase these huge POs. We really built this engine that would build the business brick by brick, consumer by consumer. And it was really unique to the industry at that point. Um, and on as far as Instagram goes, we were on the cutting edge of influencers. So today, influencers are like, you know, everybody knows the strategy. It's not, It's no secret anymore. But back then, one, there weren't any analytics to track it, and no one had really done it. So you had to, one, have the autonomy to do it, which meant you probably had to be private. And two, you had to have the gut instinct that it was working to keep doing it. And the unique thing that we did was a lot of people, when they want to do an influencer strategy, they hire an agency that says, hey, here are 500 influencers. We'll reach out to them. We have relationships with these people, whatever. And the, the fundamental problem with that is it's not authentic at all because the influencers get reached out to by a PR firm on someone's behalf. It's like you're immediately in between a broker. And so what I would do is lay in bed and direct message Instagram influencers. And I would just say, hey, we have a product that I think you'll like. No strings attached. Can I just send some to you? And literally, like, we're, we're, not, we're not asking for anything in return. You're just a consumer who we can see would like these, and we want you to try them. And we would focus on people with relatively modest followings, you know, as low as 2,000 followers in some cases, because we really wanted to prioritize building this authentic community of people who understood the product intimately and, uh, and who were really evangelists for it, not paid by a firm. And so it, at first, maybe didn't feel like a a huge impact, but over time you build this big community of people who are genuinely in, not because a PR firm signed them up for 30 days of influence. And we built this really unique engine and and it really was like a ground up swell. Right. And so that was a huge thing. And then we layered on a really, uh, a really strong email component of our business where we would help our inside sales team be really efficient with their time 
by helping manage some of the communication to those B2B accounts. Um, when you track as far <clears> as like the Instagram followers or the influencers, you know, what would you say is the RO, not the ROI on that, but how many, you know, by doing that strategy, how well did it work? You know, because I think that's pretty cool, man. Yeah. I mean, so it was one of those things that you truly, you can't track it. I mean, you can you can follow it and you can have a gut on what's working, but you can't say it was a $3 per new customer. It's just not possible. Or if you do that, you're going to stop doing it because the numbers don't, <laughs> don't look good if you try to track it like that. So for us, it was more like we could see it because we were in it every day. You know, We were posting on our own account. We were following people who were in the space. And so you could just see that slowly like our X-Bar was working its way into more of these feeds that we thought were uh, a part of our core consumers' lives. So whether they were foodies, paleo influencers, Whole30 influencers, uh, you could just see it. It was like you could you could feel it. You could see the engagement was picking up, but it wasn't uh, like a black and white numerical ROI kind of thing. It was just you could you could just tell. see it a lot more people. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And you and you wouldn't be able to do that if you weren't as small a team as we were managing the business so hands on because uh, you just you just you'd be too far removed from it to know it was working. How many people on your team at this point? Uh, so there were four of us in 2014. And then by the end of 2015, I think there were like maybe 10 or 12. You see that right now? I'm look, So I looked it up right now. He had over 51,000 posts. 51,000 posts of RX Bar. That's, that's, yeah. And it's, obviously they didn't do it all. Like that's right now? People all, right now. Over literally this. Like, and we, so what he's talking about is not, I mean, I don't even know who this person is. She's all the way in Kansas, Kale Couture. You just got, you just got some connections with us, Kale. All right, Callie, Callie Couture, right there. Over a thousand likes, and that's just off of hers. So what he's talking about is 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 extremely cool, awesome. He's talking about influences. I'm assuming Anna. There you go. All right, Anna, that's pretty cool, man. Sam, you're the bomb.com, buddy. <laughs> that actually works. We we might we might need to start doing some of that for true mentors. So <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And and you know, what type of what type of commercial marketing did you do? What, what where'd you spend money on the old school type of marketing? Anything? Uh, anything so there? so in the early days we didn't. Um, we started to to experiment with paid social, so on Facebook and Instagram, and a little bit of AdWords in late 2015 is when we started to really kind of put a program around around tracking it. And in in those cases, you're tracking like a very specific ROI. And then we would do some ad, Amazon advertising and things like that. Um, but it wasn't until uh let's see 2000 late 2017 that we did real out of home billboard tv kind of traditional traditional marketing um and by that point we were distributed widely so you could find us in a walmart a target whole foods you know you name it and so by that point you could you could make the case like hey a tv ad might work whereas back in the day you can only get them at CrossFit gyms and online, and so TV ad was just not didn't make any sense. They could love the ad, but can't couldn't find it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we built the distribution first. So, so end of 2015, we were still basically purely e-com, but we had finished the repackaging, and we felt like at that point we were ready for retail, ready to at least go into retail and see whether or not we would work on the traditional shelves. Because at that point, we were proven online. Uh, at least to ourselves. Um, the funny thing is no one knew, you can't tell how big a business is when they're just online. Right. 
Whereas once you go into the retail channels, now there's some publicly available data that could tell you how big a company is. So we'd have company people come up to us and say, someday you guys are going to get to you know, a million dollars in sales. And we were way beyond that. <laughs> and we were like, thank you. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, and you had to be itching for that retail market. I mean, you, here you saw, you know, we want to, we don't go after retail as much as we used to. It's part of our big part of our business still, yeah. but we go after, you know, distribution and, 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 um, industrial a lot, a lot, uh, more nowadays. But when you were on board, right, you were contacting the retail retail people with us and going out and, and knocking on doors with us. Yeah. So you you had to be itching to go after that market eventually, totally. right? Yeah, yeah. And that and so for in the food space, we did a great job online. And online is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the food market. Um but the the big market still today is in traditional brick and mortar. More people buy their groceries in a Kroger or a Walmart or a Target than they do online today. Um, and so we knew, we always knew that that was a part of the plan and the question was just when. And we wanted to make sure that the business was ready, that we had the funds ready to support it when we went in and that the product was ready, that we felt really good about the product consistency, the product quality, the look and the feel of the product, the packaging. So once we felt like we were in a pretty good spot, then we started to look into traditional retail. What, what was the... Uh What's that number? What there was there a couple numbers you said? Okay, once we get to these numbers, where we could yeah. we should be ready, right? We didn't have a specific number, but but we wanted basically the big thing was we'd always heard that when you go into traditional retail, you start to sell the distributors, and then you're going to get all these chargebacks that they're going to say, hey, you know, we bought your bars for five dollars, but we're only paying you two because of all these things, and so we were nervous. We thought, you know, we built this great business and we don't want to ruin it by charging too hard into a distribution strategy that we don't that we're not familiar with and none of us were from food so we're figuring all this out as we go and um so so originally actually uh this speaks to our mindset a lot but originally we tried to do it without any traditional distribution and so our first retailer was actually uh hyvee's stores which are all through the midwest and they're usually locally owned or locally managed. And you can literally call a Hy-Vee and get transferred to the nutritionist who is oftentimes an amazing resource for their customers because they're a nutritionist on staff to help the customers figure out what to eat. And so we thought, what better person in retail for us to you know, bring into the fold? And so we would call these nutritionists, say, hey, we want to sell you our X-Bars, but we're not in distribution. And we would literally ship FedEx boxes of RX bars to the front door of grocery stores. So no distribution, but we were FedExing bars to these Hy-Vees. And then they would pay us with checks in the mail, which like to anybody in the food space, it's like that is the most insane thing I've ever heard. Uh, but so we pretty quickly figured out that we really couldn't go much further with that model. Because um, I mean, like, you know, the big guys aren't even going to talk to you about that. And um so we so we built a really strong relationship first with UNFI and then with Kehi, who are two of the biggest distrib- distributors in the food space. Um, and actually, our first account was the result of that original strategy. When we thought, hey, we can just sell into these things direct. We don't need to partner with a distributor. We shipped bars to, I mean, probably every buyer in the country. And one of them was Wegmans. And they called and they said, hey, we got your bars. We'd love to bring them in, but you got to come in through UNFI. So we said, all right. At that point, we had kind of we had sort of realized we needed to go that route, and so 
Uh, so at that point, we started to partner with distributors. Um, so I have a lot of friends who um, they're amazing bakers, or that you know they're they're really good at that whole aspect of of a business, specifically in food services. And I think it, a lot of people would say that a lot of people try in that field, and, they, and I think their whole goal is to get inside a Whole Foods or a Target. Um, and I know you kind of uh, spoke on that. What are probably some barriers of entry that you feel for people who have a business or they're starting a business from scratch in the food industry? Like, watch out for this because get ready for it because if you if you expect to be in a Whole Foods, et cetera. So the, the common focus for food entrepreneurs is the barriers of entry that are sort of the most obvious, which are getting into distribution, getting the retailer to say yes, getting the manufacturing capacity to make it and all those things. And no question, those are barriers. But the biggest barrier is the consumer. If the consumer doesn't want it, doesn't know about it, isn't asking Target to bring it onto their shelves, then why would Target do it? And so that was the big difference with RX Bar was we had, we had cleared that barrier. And the most important barrier is the consumer. So we had built such a strong relationship with the consumer through our online business that by the time we were talking to Target, Target was already well aware of us. And they had seen the success that we were having online, and they were seeing the posts on Instagram, and they were seeing the consumer awareness. And so then that makes Target excited because Target's, uh, they have physical space that's very valuable. And so they don't want to risk it on just any brand. And so when we could come to Target and say, hey, look, we have all this consumer awareness and we're going to support the business in these ways, then Target was excited to work with us. It was less of a risk on their end. So I think the biggest barrier is the connection to the consumer. So so, you, so now you've, you've gone into distribution at this point, right? And I mean, you, back then and still today, I mean, what part is, is that now compared to otherwise? Yeah, so it's a big part of the business now, the distribution versus the e-com piece. Um, but... Uh, I have to be careful because we're part of a publicly traded company, but <laughs> uh, but it's a bigger it's a big part of the business. Yeah, the distribution side, and I mean, just the traditional brick and mortar side of grocery is a is a huge market. Are there any stores you're not in right now? Maybe we look at Walmart, Target, um, and then these these, these almost all stores we're in. Uh, we're not in any super hard discounters, so like dollar store kind of things we haven't gone into yet. Um, there's a handful of other like kind of big box style discounters, like grocery outlet on the West Coast and things like that, that usually specialize in short coated product, meaning co- product that's about to expire. Uh, or maybe packaging changeovers, things like that. But but all kind of your where you shop traditionally for grocery stores, we're in almost all of them. Yeah, you know, I remember uh, in 2000, let's say 14, 15, I'd see your bar somewhere. I'd get so excited. Yeah. Whoa, they're here at the, <laughs> uh, you know, at this little grocer or wherever it might be, right? And, uh, and I mean, it's crazy. You see them everywhere. It's so fun to see these things everywhere. And I take pictures and, set and text them to you sometimes. But I was in Beverly Hills Hotel two weeks ago at the, at the Abundance 360. So it's CEOs from all over the world, uh, the technology conference. And I got invited to this thing. It's, it's really a fun thing. But I'm, I'm, I'm uh, at the store there, and, and they're 
and there's a huge rack of RX bars, right? I'm like, whoa, I didn't know he had, I, I never heard of that one, right? Before I'm looking at these, and I'm telling my friends, all these, all these crazy tech people that, that I, I was with two different friends of mine, they're crazy tech, tech guys, and tell them your, the story, right? And they're like, whoa, that's awesome. Yeah, I love these things. Both guys knew all about them. It's like one of their favorite bars now. But it's so fun to, to go anywhere in the country now, probably eventually in the world, and I'm going to be able to see RX. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I love those how techs. Fun, how fun is it, right, for you to, oh, to see awesome. this stuff go on, right, to be in, in the middle of it? It's got to be so so gratifying. Yeah, I remember there was a guy early on. He makes a product called Diana's Bananas. He's a local Chicago guy. These chocolate-covered bananas. And he told us, he was like, you'll be so proud that you make a physical thing that you can give people. And I I didn't totally understand what he was saying, but he's he's so right, you know, that I can walk into somebody's house and give them something or have you, you know, across the country see it and get excited. It's really cool. Yeah. No, it's, it's gotta be so fun, so much fun. And, 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 uh, it's like, I, I don't know a market that it wouldn't be good for. Like, you know, you, like you're saying at first it was this CrossFit market, but how are these not good for like any market? Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're healthy. They're, they taste awesome. Right. They're, they're, they're cool. So, um, well, one thing I, I see here that in three years you all went from two million to one hundred and thirty million in three years, and that's that's pretty good. And that means that's, that, pre- that's pretty good growth. That's, well, that's, that's better than average. That's, I, 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 I bet that's better. Yeah, you're than average. right. <laughs> actually, it's not even pretty. It's, we it's, looked it's at phenomenal. the data. If you look <laughs> at the data, I think this should be better than average. Exactly. There's, I look at the, all the analytics, and I think any comp, any person would have would want their business to be there. But that also means that you all probably or more than likely hired some amazing people to assist you all in that way. So what was you all strategy? Because they always say one of the reasons why most people fail is because they don't have the right team. Um, So what did that look like? How did you all create that? I actually just had this conversation with someone and uh, a super high growth environment like that is different than hiring in a more stable environment. And there's a couple big differences. One is that you don't need to hire a supply chain person who has run a big supply chain business for 30 years. You need someone who knows how to build it. And those are totally different skill sets. And so, and someone who can keep up with the supply chain that's needed for a $10 million business. And then the one that's needed for a, you know, $200 million business, the ability to scale and adapt is really hard. And so, we went through a bunch of iterations of our interviewing process and we were, we were self-aware enough early on that we knew we had to pay very close attention to how we hired and we had to build a, a system for hiring and, and really a system for evaluating the humans that are walking in our doors because it's very hard. And um, one of the consistent elements that we uncovered was if you are um, – self-aware and have the ability to be vulnerable, you have a better chance at success in that environment. And the reason is if you're going to go from $2 million business to $130 million business, I can almost guarantee you your role is going to change no matter what role you're in. Right. So sometimes for the, for the better, more challenging role, paying more money, sometimes not. Sometimes you're just not fit or not passionate enough to go to that next level. Exactly. And, and one of the big things is if you can't honestly admit that, Hey, I'm in a new role or the company's in a new era and either I think I can get there, but I don't have the skills right now. So I got to go find them or I've got to hire the right team or I've got to, 
if you can't do that, you're going to get just run over by the growth. And so one of the big breakthroughs for us was figuring out how to identify someone who was uh, self-aware enough to keep up with that growth. And sometimes that meant like we had, it became what was really amazing was we got to a point in the company where people would voluntarily raise their hands and give up responsibility, which you rarely see in a corporate environment. Wow. And, and that's self-awareness. And, yeah. And it was because they were like, you know what? I want to be on this team. I know that self-awareness is valued here. I know I'm out over my skis and I've got two departments that should be two instead of just one. And I'm going to like raise my hand and say, Hey, we should hire somebody to run this and I should focus on this. And that was incredible because then you, you just have a team that's all working towards one goal instead of trying to create little fiefdoms. Um, and it, it really made a huge difference in our growth. So, so Sam, you know, we, we use the EOS system today. You heard of that? Uh, I think so. Entrepreneurial operating system that we use today. And we, we started like two years ago. When I first dug into this, like, like six, seven years ago, you were on board. You were on our team when I dug in this originally. You may have heard me talking about back then, but um, the book tells you. Was that it, traction? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember we brought yeah, that book in? Yeah. And Leotold was like that too a little bit. He was different than traction, but similar, right? Um, but but with, with traction, the book traction and then the EOS system, it totally, totally reiterates over and over if you have any self selfishness, felt selfishness on your team, right, um, or lack of self awareness, right, you, you can't do this. You can't do the program. Don't even think about it, right. And, and if you remember, it was my friend Shelly, Shelly's son who was doing it back then. Shelly grew a business from back then thirty million to half a billion or so now, right? I mean, I mean whatever it is, it's a big, big organization, Bright Star. And and uh, back then. I, I read this book and I said, God, we've got some work to do, right? Maybe myself, maybe my team, some of my teammates. We have some work to do before we can do the system. And and uh, through a lot of uh, a lot of challenge we had in our business and some big losses, and you know, I got I got got to be really lean a few years ago after after uh, your, after your departure, right? We had some issues and. And uh, mostly because now, now I think of it, it's because of Sam they had all those issues. Yeah, he he left, le- he left, left us. You. He left you. But we, we had some major issues, big losses, you know, loss in profits, like a huge chunk of change we lost in eight months, right? Um, and, and bottom line is I had to look, and, and after, I, after I got very lean, um, some, some of our team members you know, went on to great things, and, and they've got great opportunities somewhere else. Others, you know, we, we didn't promote as well maybe, but, but so, you know, some we, we realized didn't have that selflessness, right? And by the time we got through it all and, and things cranked up a few, you know, within a few years, we, we, we became uh, very, very solid financially and paid down all that debt and all the things we had to do. Um, but uh, we, we realized we're in, shape for the, we're in shape now to try traction. And, and, and the EOS system. So two years ago we did it, and, we're, and it's, it's working amazingly, right? But, but every, t- every meeting we have, whether it's a weekly L10 or it's a quarterly meeting for, with, the, with the leaders, um, we look around the room, man, and if, and if there's any, any of this self, uh, selfishness and uh, uh, lack of, lack of uh, awareness, self-awareness, then, then we're questioning it. We're calling people out because, again, that's the key. If you're going to have a, vision, you know, a clear vision and, and, and an execute, a system to execute that vision that, that you can create, that everybody buys into, Boy, you better have the, 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 those those leaders on the team that that are, are are willing to be held accountable, right? To to the values you 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 create or you build as a team, right? Yeah. And if you don't have it, you're done. So it's amazing, it's awesome that you guys, as young leaders, realized that so early on and yeah. and uh, hired that way. Yeah, we used a uh, the first we could kind of feel it, but the first system that we brought in was this thing called DISC, 
Yeah, sure. And so Mike Meritish always uses this. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really kind of focused on communication, but it's really personality styles. Right. But that was the first time that we had really done sort of objective self-reflection where you take an exam and you look at where you fall on the pie chart and you're like, oh, man, I might be That's like really running me. people over. Yeah. Uh, and so that was the first thing. And then we progressively added more and more onto it. Um, we ended up doing, we did Hogan about a year ago, which is a more in depth, uh, process, but, um, I've never, the amount of time we spent on helping people discover a deeper understanding of who they are, their strengths, their weaknesses, how they show up, it pays huge dividends. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and many, many people are going to rise to the occasion and, and discover uh, that they want more, right? They want, yeah. they want to be a big, bigger part of this vision. And then some people will actually have the self-awareness and say, you know what? Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. And that's, yeah. and that's invaluable, too. You need those people that, that, that are great at what they do, that, that, that are okay with continually training others to be great at that, in that role and, and supporting, right? Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. Is it um? Because uh, the question I want to ask, I just want to make sure it's public knowledge about who you all have been acquired by. Kellogg, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, and obviously the acquisition of uh, how much it was six hundred million. Like, how did that knock on the door? I think that's every uh, food entrepreneur's dream. You know, um, how did that happen? How did that come about? What specific? Yeah. Well, let's start there. How did that come about? Well, and and, and let me add one more thing. You can throw in there is is the uh, the fact that no fundraising before this point. No fundraising, is, by the way. Everybody believes they got to raise funds. They got to raise funds. They got to go out for for a round, and and you guys yeah. didn't, which is awesome. Yeah, it's uh, the fundraising thing has become kind of like a like a cultural thing in entrepreneurship, and and like I mentioned before, I was just sort of lucky. The guys who I looked up to ran paper businesses. You know what I mean? They weren't out there like pitching Silicon Valley VCs. They're they're making paper profitably and over time, yeah. And um and the same was true. So Peter and Jared, uh, Peter's father had advice for Peter early on and Jared that, Hey, you just got to go sell some bars. Like, don't go spend your time making a PowerPoint deck about what you're going to do. Go do it. And then if at some point you need money, you'll figure that out, but really just start one foot in front of the other. Uh, and so that was sort of a, that was baked into our DNA from an early, from the beginning. Um, and then as far as Kellogg, we went through a formal sale process. So we hired a banker, uh, she introduced that she basically introduced the company to 50 or so strategics through a very high level intro of the company, where it's at general revenue, that kind of thing. Um, and then that list gets narrowed down to the final bidders over a six or so month process. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and, and, and we go through management presentations that are basically like a day long presentation of the business to some of these potential acquirers. And one of the things with Kellogg that was important to us was that there was cultural alignment. So we had built this really strong culture based on self-awareness and authenticity and vulnerability. And we thought it was really unique and special. And so one of the things that was so important to us throughout the process was that we evaluate the culture of the business that would be acquiring us and um, and basically reserve the right to say no if we felt like, hey, this is just not going to work for the for the team that we built. And so it ended up being Kellogg, and uh, they're an amazing business, and they brought a global perspective and a bunch of other things. Were there were there any seconds or there second and thirds out there that were pretty attractive too? Yeah, I mean there were other strategics that that were definitely interested and um, and interesting for a variety of reasons. Yeah. 
And in, in this case, you were on your way to revenues of over 100 million. You're, you're, you wasn't you weren't there yet. We were by the so the end of the process was end of Q3 of, um, 2017. of 2017. So basically, the year was pretty much baked, and uh, we were going to be well north of 100 million by the time the acquisition happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. And then uh, what's what's changed now Is it, since uh, Kellogg's become your partner? Um, where where are you and your partners at now in the in this whole organization? How's that going? Yeah, so. Um, Kellogg is they've lived up to everything that they set up front and that they've said publicly, which is they want our X bar to stand alone and operate as an independent business, which is really important to us because we had built a business that could stand on its own. Um, and so uh, that's still true today. You know, the team's still running the business and uh, the business keeps growing and things are really good. So what's your position there now? Uh, I'm our COO. Of? Our X bar. Our X bar. Yeah. And then how about your partners? Where are they at? Uh, Peter's our CEO, and then Jared's an advisor to the business, but he's not involved day to day. Wow! And uh, you know, what's what's the direction? Where are you going to be in ten years in this business? What's your what you know? Who who can you model after out there that you, that you know you can kick the kick the snot out of? Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> so uh, Cliff Bar is a billion dollar business, and so there's no reason to think that the RX Bar bar business can't be on the same level as Cliff Bar, if, if not bigger. I mean, the trends would be in our our favor, and Cliff has shown that you can get a brand that size. What Cliff's done incredibly well is they've built a phenomenal team. And like in the early days, we would try to recruit people, and they wouldn't even let us finish our sentence before they would say, I'm not leaving. And so that's not an easy task. It's not like it's a lay down, but, but clearly there's someone who's done it. So I think there, that's one. And then I think uh, our, the RX Bar team could be a platform uh, for early stage businesses, you know, I think they can handle more than just one brand in RX bar. And right, and right now, I mean, from where you were, um, a few years ago, what, you know, you've got, uh, more flavors, right. Um, uh, you know, different, you, you've got the butter. Now. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me about where you're at now and how, how far is too far before you spread out too thin? It's a good question. Uh, so where we are today, we have, more flavors than we've ever had. We've got seasonal flavors like gingerbread and pumpkin spice. I like pumpkin um, spice. Pumpkin spice is good. Everybody like, likes yeah. pumpkin around pumpkin time. Pumpkin right? spice was, <laughs> a, was like one of the first big influencer like formal campaigns that we did. We sent out taste testers of pumpkin spice to the influencers who got like an early access look at a flavor we were developing, which which went really well. But um, um, so yeah, and then we've got the nut butters and. Those have done really, really well, and we've got the kids line as well. So, the brand is in a good place. I don't think it's. Have spread you tried the thin. nut butters yet? I haven't. Oh, the nut butters get are on, awesome. Get on. I've got some in my refrigerator. Okay, well good. there we go. I'm gonna pass them on to you. The first couple will be free. Once you're once, <laughs> once you're hooked, though, <laughs> once you're hooked, it's, I'll, just, uh, I'll just come to Sam. I'll just come to Sam. Um, so, I don't think we're too thin yet, but that's always a concern: is that you don't spread the brand too thin. I um so one of the things I wanted to you know and, and I feel like uh, when when I had a conversation I called you I remember I called you the other day and I was really like hey you know let me ask you a question and he's literally talking to me but yet saying hey how you doing and, and literally everybody's trying to stop Sam to ask a question I appreciate you know, a lot of, a lot of people trying to come at you from an entrepreneur perspective but then obviously you spoke at Google um you know uh, uh, as far as you know Google, you spoke at Google and you're you're speaking all over the place and I'm pretty sure a lot of entrepreneurs want to know some of the um, 
some of the things to get success on their own. What are probably into entrepreneurs today? If there were certain things that you feel that all entrepreneurs need to have today, what would that be in order for them to get some scalability or success like you've had? So I think the first thing that they should know is that it's it isn't sexy. It looks like it in retrospect, you know? Like the headline now for us is, in four years, our X bar acquired by Kellogg for 600 million, but it wasn't like we were like, just, you know, I mean, the, the route there is really hard and, um, and, and pretty, you know, you grind it out. It's not like it's this pretty sexy headline kind of thing. It's really like an kind of an ugly, hard, not sexy process. And for a while, like I actually think of Jimmy John all the time, like, for a while, he was just a guy who made sandwiches, and that's not that sexy. But now that it's Jimmy John's, it's sexy. So I think that's the biggest thing for entrepreneurs to know is if you don't like the process, like if you don't actually like getting up and doing it every day, it's not going to be very much fun because you have this outcome that you're working towards, and very rarely do you do you get it. And so uh, I think that's the biggest thing is that like it's a grind, and you have to really like it. Yeah, not everybody's blessed to be in paving. It's just always sexy, and it just looks as just <laughs> sexy, right? I mean, I, yeah, it just you, smells and, so good. And it? so when you went from asphalt and concrete to to this, right. right? It was it was no it was no problem because you went from the sexy business, and you could you could actually, you know, I could always fall back on. You always that. fall back on yeah. if you had to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, what else you got for him? Man, you know? I, I, so much more. I just, I just don't. I, I want to kind of keep them to myself, to be honest with you. Um, I guess one of the last things, you know, as we're, as we're winding down, when it comes to mentorship, I believe mentorship, as you said earlier, is an extremely important part to your success. Who are some of the mentors that you look <clears> at? Um, some of the people you definitely consider are influencers to you to kind of keep you focused on uh, leaving a legacy daily. You yeah, know? yeah. So I mean, uh, when I was a kid, the the I mean, my parents first, just seeing how they worked was huge for me. Uh, but then I, Andy McKenna, who was the chairman of the board at McDonald's for a long time, was kind enough to give me some of his time. And I mean, I did not deserve it at all. You know, I mean, this guy is busy with super, super important high level stuff. And he would give me a half an hour here, or there, and I could just ask him questions about leadership or what he'd seen. And so he was incredibly formative for me. Um, and then there's a bunch of others, but I mean, the, the, uh, CEO at Livewatch, Brad Moorhead, Feldco, Doug Cook, um, Gary, um, and then there's uh, dozens of others, you know, I mean, I think that's probably what I've done best is have built relationships with people who have seen more than I've had than I've seen. Um, but I mean, you know, the mentors are invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of these you, you mentioned, and Andy uh, McKenna is one that, you know, so many people I know, you know, I've, I've met him a couple of times, listened to him and, you know, just, just, just listening to his story and listening to him, you're going to, you're going to take something away from him if you really, if you really care. Right. Yeah. And the best part about him is if you don't, if you don't know him, you have no idea who he is, but he's this like quietly, incredibly influential guy who's seen so much. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think about some of the stuff you've done and, and how you pay you pay attention to everything. You're you're a sponge, and that's and that's huge. If you're passionate about stuff, you're a sponge, right? You're gonna you're gonna take a lot away from things that other people wouldn't, right? And I, and I look at your you know, the emotional intelligence stuff and and the, and the way you hire. 
you know, I, I remember when, you know, you and I and a, a group of us were doing a forum, right? And what did we do? We, we focused on self-awareness. And, and actually, Q is building that back in our organization right now through, through True Mentors. He's got a product that he's building within our organization right now where we start going back to those, those forums, right? Because after you left, that fell apart too, Sam. <laughs> you, Sam blew that too on us. He left, he left. We had this great forum, this intimate forum with a bunch of our leaders and Sam leaves and uh, Sam's gone now. Man. We can't do this anymore. <laughs> Just it away it's funny because we, we actually had, a, uh, you know, Nick moved out of state and a couple other things happened and sure enough that fell apart. But, you know, Brad and the, and the leaders today, Austin, these guys are saying, we got to do that again, man. That was awesome, right? And, and again, you, you picked up on, on, on that and use it, you know, use it in your business. And, and that was something we learned through Big Jim. Jim yeah. Jimmy John's dad, Big, Big Jim, if you remember – you know, uh, putting that together, the, the, the you know, forum experience um, focused on leading with emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. And, and again, you're, you're a great example of that. So it's awesome. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Man, so uh, I got some takeaways, man. Well, you know what? Just, just before the takeaways, yeah. the only other thing I want to say is, is, you know, we talk about, we talk about uh, life, work, balance, and all these things, right? And, uh, and I, I, I kind of believe most of that's a bunch of BS, right? I, I, think, I think, you know, if, if you're a great father, a great husband, and, 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 a, uh, and, and great in business, you can do all those things and, and kind of balance it as your, your, your partner at home can handle. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I look at that sometimes as a BS. And, and not that we don't need to pay attention to what we, how much time we spend with our families and how much at work. But, but overall, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have to work your butt off. And you're going to be working sometimes at home. And you're going to be doing stuff in, laying in bed, as you said, um, and and uh, you've been an amazing example of this when I, when I look at the family you're building and that it, it awesome wife that you have and these, these beautiful kids you, you've got. Um, tell us just a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, uh, thank you for asking. So, uh, I mean, in the first place, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have taken this path without marrying my wife. So she uh, comes from, her father's an entrepreneur, so she kind of understands what it means. This, the side that's not sexy and not fun. And so when I was originally leaving finance to go work for this home security business that was west of Topeka, Kansas, she was like, yeah, you should do that. And I think it's very rare for anybody to understand what a good opportunity that was. So that's first and foremost. Um, and I always tell people, so the other question to entrepreneurs is like, you have to pick your partner very wisely. It's either going to be a wind at your back or a huge problem for you if you want to be a successful business person. Um, and then the best part is so we have two young boys, a three-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And no matter how successful you are, you know, I come home the day the Kellogg deal is announced and I'm king of the world. And, and you know, James throws up on me or, <laughs> you know, tells me to get out of here. And, you know, he doesn't care at all. And so... Uh, they're amazing. They're so grounding and, um, and they teach you a lot too. You know, I mean, James is negotiating with me all day long <laughs> and so he's got me sharp. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and uh, you know, so, so you think, think of family and what that means, right? I mean, if, you know, if, if, if you know, some days you're going to, some weeks you're going to work crazy hours and, and, and you're going to, and that family, if it's a great family and a great wife, she's, she's going to, she's going to be there for you. And some, some, you know, hopefully it creates the blessings of, of success and, and the ability to, to take a week off at a time, right, and, and spend that time with your family and everything else. Um, if, if, we, if we think of, uh, you know, that, that culture at home and, and the culture at work, 
I mean, can you match culture at work to, to be as, as, as family-oriented and, and fun-oriented, even in, in a public, business, public uh, setting like you have today? Are you able to take that culture that you built, emotional intelligence and self-awareness and the family atmosphere I know you're about, right, at work as well, are you able to do that in a, in a public setting? Yeah, I mean, I think they reinforce each other. So I, the emotional intelligence stuff that we did professionally was done to get a better outcome at work. But you start to realize, actually, this stuff applies everywhere. You know, and, and if my wife and I are coming to problems from a position of each understanding how we operate, because we're very different, that actually improves our likelihood of being happy and, and coming up with good outcomes. Um, and then I think at work, there are, so uh, Peter, Jared, and I, and then the fourth person who was at uh, RX Bar back in those days was Jesse, and she's also a great school friend of ours. And so the benefit that we had, it, it could be a little messy because of that, but at the same time, we had built-in culture and built-in values alignment that we didn't really appreciate until we went to actually go formalize it for the company. We realized, oh, in the early days, we took it for granted because it's like you don't go home and write down your values usually. You kind of know what they are. And so I definitely think there's a lot of overlap there. The tough thing on the professional side is there are some professional decisions that have to be kind of separated from the personal relationship. So Peter and I were really open with each other that our personal relationship just wasn't had to take a backseat during the run up of our X bar because if he was showing me favoritism because I was his friend, that would impact the way that the business was run. So we had to be thoughtful about it, but I still think it's a massive net positive if you can take some of those things into the workplace. Tell me, tell me, COO now, you were, you were sales, you know, leader of the sales force, marketing sales, now COO, you know, yeah. different hat pretty much, right? Tell me how those compare and, and what you're able to bring to that position to, to be strong enough to be the, 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 C, the COO. Yeah, so the COO is really, it's more of a leadership expansion of responsibilities than a tactical one. So if, uh, if someone got sick on the sales team and I had to dive in and, and, and jump into their role, I probably wouldn't be as good as them, but I could do it. Marketing, same thing. Uh, supply chain, not true. <laughs> you know, it's not my area of expertise, but uh, I'm pretty good at building teams and leading. And so it was more of a leadership expansion than it was a tactical representation. So I could never do our chief supply chain officer's job. He's He's amazing, and I, I just couldn't do his job. <laughs> no way. Well, that, and they're good, and that's self-awareness, and I, and I love hearing that, Adi, because, you know, we, some, some, some of us think we can do it all, and we're the best at everything, and, and some have self-awareness, and you're your example of that, so it's really cool. I, I, you know, something I'd like to ask also is, you know, when I, when I, you know, I travel, tra- travel across the world, and, and, I, and I meet people from all over the world, I'm blessed to, that I'm in some organizations where I, I, I get to, to meet a lot of different people. And, and I, I believe and that, that there's nowhere else this could be done. The, you know, the successes, the, the 37-year overnight success I've had and the, and, uh, you know, four or five, 10-year overnight success you've had, right? I, I just don't believe it could be done in other, in other parts of the world like it can in the U.S. I mean, what's your feeling towards that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredible. I mean, not only just from the standpoint that you can create something and go out and sell it uh, without much limitation, but also the size of our market. You know, as we started to reach the end of the new distribution in the U.S., we started to look at other markets, and they're just not nearly as big. 
<laughs> and they're much harder to to work with and um and that's where someone like Kellogg has deep expertise that we don't but you know the Canadian market for most food companies best case is 10% of the size of the US market so not only do you have an incredible amount of freedom here to go to go build but you also have a lot of size so you could build a really substantial business without having to leave the border it's a great great point and you know the, the other parts of the world that do have this this drive for free enterprise right like israel and and some others um much smaller markets so their goal is usually to get here right yeah. produce this product to figure out this this amazing value proposition then get here get to us yeah. right um which is which is exciting because we're blessed that we're in the middle of it right um, so yeah, I, I, w- I was you know look at look at my friends here and and uh, that are appreciative of this and, and, and have gratitude of this this environment we're in right, oh, yeah. and say man we better make sure we hold on to it yeah. right for the, for our kids for your kids in the future so they can do the same thing, yeah. so good stuff. Okay, Q, yeah. go ahead, buddy. Throw it, throw it, throw at us. Man, I just, ooh Jesus, I just got so many Quentin's true takeaways today, man. So one of the first things you started with with. Uh, and I hope you all are writing this down as you're listening to it as well. The best leaders are trusted and respected, and I think that's really keen and and uh, you know and it's actually pretty true to two to both of these leaders right here. But as we start getting more into our X bar, you know, niches are really powerful. Stay in the niche as long as you can. I mean, I think that's really true, and simplicity is key. I think a lot of people try to. Uh, like as you said, you know, the simpler it is, the easier it is for others to promote it, right? And and if it is easier for them to promote it, it means easier for everybody to understand. And um, it's cool to that. Uh, you know, when it comes to the product itself, for uh, you know, for our um, food entrepreneurs, product consistent, product quality is important for traditional retail. Uh, but the most important barrier is the consumer. And I felt that I was kind of like back and forth, like that's the person you're going for. But if they don't like it, then you probably shouldn't be out there doing it. Um, pay close attention on how you hire as you scale fast. But one of the two biggest things I got is entrepreneurship isn't sexy, man. I mean, I think we see a lot out here of the people that think you could just do this and wake up early in the morning and just walk outside and here you are. But like you said, man, the title sounds nice. We got bought by Kellogg with $600 million, but they forget that that was blunt for sweat equity for over, you know, uh, at least 60, 60 months or so. Uh, but the most important thing you got on here that I love is build relations with people who have seen more than you have. And um, I think your success is a testament to that. And I'm just blessed to know you and have you in my back pocket, Sam, as well as you, Gary. So it's been pretty cool. And, and you know, you, you covered everything there, I think. But the only, the only thing I would I, I liked a lot was, uh, you know, selflessness, hire for selflessness and, self, yeah. and self-awareness, right? I mean, if you can hire people that that are selfless, right? That that just just want to do good things and want to want to serve, right? And the, and then and then the uh, self awareness to understand where your strengths and weaknesses are, and 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 if, and if you can raise your hand and say, "Man, this just isn't me. I know this is an opportunity for more money, but it's not me, right? Uh, you know, so so let's help. I'm gonna help you find somebody else, right, for this spot. I mean, if you can if you can build a team like that, Sam, that's just incredible. And I know you you'll continue to to focus on these things to do the do the great stuff you're doing. So, so I, I, I really appreciate. Oh, you know, hey, you know, I forgot about this. I'm, I'm looking at this card I got from Sam, and it was cool. One of the coolest things is after they sold, he sent me a really nice card with the nine different flavors on it. And uh, you know, be, besides the fact that uh, uh, I got a tear in my eye after after seeing this, I got hungry for our X bars. So, 
our RX bars, uh, you know what, uh, Cliff, watch out, baby. We're going <laughs> to kick your ass. No, I, I, I'm so excited for RX and, and where it's going with your leadership and Peter's leadership. Uh, so thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, and we'll see you all next time on Ditch Digger CEO. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. We're blessed to build a business in America where soldiers fight for our freedom every day. Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck rolling down highway. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man